Before we dig into our episode today, I've got a question for you, and you got to be honest. Did you work this past weekend? I'm thinking you did, at least some of the time. I know what nonprofit leaders are like. You deal with critical issues every day. Everything feels urgent. You have too much work and too few people to help you, and you're a pleaser. Taking time off almost makes you feel guilty. I know you want to have a huge impact. I totally get that, but I also know how important it is that you still have a life. A life beyond work? Are you serious, Joan? Yep, I'm completely serious. It's why I'm so excited about my upcoming free online mini-series, which I'm calling High Impact No Burnout, The Nonprofit Leader's Guide to Loving Your Work and Living Your Life. In it, I'm going to show you exactly how to take control of your situation so that you can love your work, have a bigger impact than ever, and even live your life. Each episode is quite short. You can binge watch the entire mini-series, kind of like Netflix, in less than 90 minutes. You're going to be inspired by the story of an executive director who noticed a gap in her community and founded an organization. She nearly burned out, but then she turned it all around and she got her life back. And while that happened, her organization has had a bigger impact than ever. There are enormously important lessons for all of us in her story, and I'm excited to share them with you. There will also be multiple opportunities for live online sessions with me where you can directly ask me all your questions and get my feedback and advice. The approach I teach in this mini-series is life-changing for nonprofit leaders, and it's why I organize the entire Nonprofit Leadership Lab, my online membership community, around these very concepts. You can request access to the mini-series and register at highimpactnoburnout.org. Again, you can register for the mini-series, it's free, at highimpactnoburnout.org. The entire miniseries will become available on September 19th, and it will be available only for a limited time through September 26th. So once again, register at highimpactnoburnout.org. I think you'll be really happy you did. And now on to today's episode. Nonprofit leadership can be a double-edged sword, don't you think? You have this awesome, and I mean this in its correct, not the overused definition of awesome, responsibility. You get paid to change at least a small part of the world. But the flip side is loneliness, and I hear that a lot. It's one of the many, many reasons I preach, in you know, quotes, about building a co-pilot relationship with your board chair. And yet it's still your board chair, the person who evaluates you um, and signs your contract if you're able to get one. Talking to staff, if you're lucky enough to have, is more than this, because going there will cause problems almost every time. So how do you commiserate with that? How do you feel like you are part of it? And why is that important? I see and feel how important it is every time I have a speaking gig. When EDs gather as part of a large national organization or as part of a state organization, you can almost feel this sense of relief. But the challenges are not uniquely yours. Or the line I hear most often, well, now I know at least I'm not crazy. Today I tackle the case of the lonely leader. I've seen it. It really thwarts your ability to lead with confidence, to learn and grow, and it's a core strategy, not just of your sanity. Our guest today has beaten the loneliness syndrome. We'll talk about how loneliness gets in the way and the choices she has made to create a community for herself 
that has been part of a 10 plus year tenure in her nonprofit CEO role. She's also fierce, smart, and a good person through and through. I like her a lot. You're going to like her too. Welcome to Nonprofits Are Messy. Not enough money, too many cooks, and abundance of passion. Leading nonprofits isn't easy. Joan Gary, author, blogger, and founder of the Nonprofit Leadership Lab, gets it. She is here to help. Landa Testone joined New York City's Lesbian, Gay, Bisexual, and Transgender Community Center as its first female executive director in 2009. Since then, she has strengthened the center's programs and infrastructure, ensuring that all LGBT New Yorkers have an opportunity to live happy, healthy lives. Testone has doubled the organization's budget from eight to $16 million, launched the nation's first digital living national monument called Stonewall Forever, and completed a $9.2 million capital building renovation to transform the community center's home on West 13th Street. Testone came to the Center from the Women's Media Center, where she served as the vice president of programs for three years. And prior to the Women's Media Center, Testone was the senior director of media programs at the National Gay and Lesbian Alliance Against Defamation, AKA GLAD. Previously, she completed an executive nonprofit training program at Harvard Business School and served as an Aspen Institute fellow. She was a member of the Ending the Aid Ending the Epidemic Task Force, which works to implement Governor Cuomo's plan to end the AIDS epidemic in New York. In addition, she served on the New York City Commission on LGBTQ Runaway and Homeless Youth and was a Tenenbaum Leadership Institute Fellow at Milano, the New York, the New School for Management and Urban Policy. Originally from Syracuse, Testona has a bachelor's from Syracuse University and a master's in women's studies from the Ohio State University. She lives in Asbury Park with her partner and their delicious seven-month-old baby. Glenda, having you as a guest ensures an opportunity uh, for us to share your wisdom and also for us to catch up. We go back a long way. Welcome. Thank you so much, Joan. I'm really excited to be here and have this conversation. So full disclosure, I hired Glenda to join the GLAD staff. Was it in 2000? It, it was. Uh, so you can see right away, Glenda was a natural manager and leader. I've also said on this podcast that Glenda was part of my succession plan. The only problem was that I stepped down a bit too soon. So Glenda gained some additional experience and then stepped into the leadership she wanted, the role the movement needed her to have, and the one she has been crushing for over a decade. So our relationship goes back nearly 20 years. Did, did I get the story right, Glenda? You are not lying. That is all correct. <laughs> so I think that it's um, more than ironic that I have you talking about loneliness when you are up to your eyeballs in work, surrounded by a big staff, board, donors, volunteers, and baby Frankie. I vaguely remember the days when my own children were babies, and there is nothing lonely about that. So you just got to tell me, how is life as a new parent? Life as a new parent is, uh, I always say it's magical um, and it's overwhelming. And it continues to be both of those things. It's just so incredible in ways you can't even put into words. And then it's also completely challenging and taxing and exhausting in ways that you can't put into words. Um, I think the biggest thing that's changed for me is my commute. So I live in Asbury Park, and my job is in Manhattan in New York City. 
Uh, it's a two hour one way commute. And I used to really struggle with that. Uh, and not look forward to it. And when I had baby Frankie, I realized that um, when we got baby Frankie, I realized that that was the only time that I could ensure I was actually alone. Um, There's a, one of my favorite little kids books is called Five Minutes Peace. And it's about uh, an elephant family. And all the mother elephant wants to do is sit in the bathtub for five minutes. Yeah. So instead, you have New Jersey transit. <laughs> so um, I'm curious, does being a parent offer you a different perspective on the work you do? I think that it does. I, um, you know, I find myself, I listen to the news a lot when I'm commuting. I listen to a lot of podcasts and um, consume a lot of news. And there isn't very much good news in the world today, it seems. Um, but I really hear things in a different way now. So I look at what's happening with the family separations at the border, which I, I would have always been outraged about. But I think now having a seven-month-old baby and hearing these stories, it just hits me in a way that's much deeper, where I can really envision it. And there's sort of a universal... Um, I've always been empathetic, but I think it's just <laughs> taken it to to a whole new level to the point where I sometimes have to say, okay, I'm going to turn off the empathy for tonight and just watch some trashy television because it's too much. Well, first of all, I know Glenda well enough to know that she watches trashy television anyway, <laughs> so I, I think she's really sort of kind of misrepresented that. The second thing I want to say is that I don't believe that Glenda can turn off the empathy. <laughs> And any time that people ask me about, so do you think my staff should present at board meetings, or do you think that I should just I should just do that as a lone wolf? I'm like, if you have a staff member who can really crush it in front of the board and can really ignite their pilot lights and stoke it, yeah. then by all means, bring it on. And if I if I needed that moment, Glenda was my go to. Because she could not talk about the work without crying. And so, um, do you, do I've, you got, still I've gotten over that, Joan. You have? <laughs> I have. I don't cry anymore. <laughs> At least not in public. <laughs> well, um, it wasn't a manipulative thing. I, I just <laughs> want to say that for the record. I yeah. just, um, <clears throat> the, the last thing I wanted to say about kids is that when I first took my job at GLAD and I was interviewing for it, like, I really felt like I was doing that job for my kids. That mm-hmm. in 1997, like I felt an obligation to do what I could to make sure that the world treated my kids well. Mm-hmm. And um, so it does actually, the two things really connect in really significant ways. So, um, so let's move from talking about not being lonely <laughs> to being lonely. Um, so nonprofit leaders, I hear it all the time, lonely. Uh, and I, I am interested in your sense of its root cause. Why do nonprofits feel this sense of loneliness? And I know you have not been part of the for-profit world, but certainly you know many folks there. And I wonder, is it unique to the nonprofit sector or is it in both places? So let's talk first about root cause of loneliness. Why do they feel a sense of loneliness? And then we can talk about whether you think it's different, uniquely different than the nonprofit mm-hmm. sector. I think the sense of loneliness in the nonprofit sector comes from the fact that you don't have 
peers in the same way. So you can't really talk to your staff about everything that's going on because there's information you have that they can't and shouldn't have. Um, and you need them to to trust you and and to allow you to lead. Uh, and that requires an authenticity without sort of oversharing that's a line I think a lot of executive directors or nonprofit CEOs walk. And then you can't really be uh, a thousand percent honest and transparent with your board um, because in truth, they don't need to know all of the gritty details and the things that are going on that are driving you nuts with a staff member or vendor or a contract. Um, and so you really have to present a particular face uh, to both of those groups. And those are the two groups of people you spend the most time with. So it really took, um, for me, finding a group of peers that I could trust and be honest with um, to really make it less lonely. Um, I also think that the loneliness feels a little bit more unique to the nonprofit sector because the stakes feel so high. Yeah. Um, that... And, you're, and, and it, it feels more pronounced because it feels like so much is riding on your particular shoulders. Do you think so? Yeah, I, I do. I think it, it feels very, the responsibility feels, as you said in the beginning, very awesome. And you don't want to screw it up. And so you don't want to say something to someone that you shouldn't. And it's really hard in the nonprofit sector, I think, to, to build that trust with people because the resources are short, the work is plentiful, and the stress is high. So it, it's sort of a, a recipe for, for feeling alone and being fearful to share things with people. And, and a lot of that is legitimate. Um, you really can't share a lot of things with a lot of people. You are paid to run that organization and, and do a good job. And that means sometimes not uh, sharing the organization's business with people who who shouldn't know about it. So I I know, and I want you to be able to talk a little bit about some of the ways or the antidotes you have had for the sort of loneliness syndrome. But have you um, have you seen loneliness take its toll on nonprofit leaders? And and if so, what does that look like? Um, I have. I definitely have. And I, I will never forget when I first became an executive director. I, I mean, I was fortunate to have mentors um, like you and, and people that have walked that path and um, I could reach out to and talk to. Uh, but I know some of my colleagues and my peers that, that did not necessarily have that. And I think came into very big jobs. It, it almost always, I think, when you go into a, a nonprofit CEO job, you're taking a step up in some way. Mm -hmm. I certainly was. Um, and so there were just things that I had to take on that I had never taken on before. And so for me, I really, there were a few people that had been doing it for a lot longer, but were still sort of in the um, the cohort of executive directors that I was in that I could talk to. But I I, I know a lot of newer executive directors who um, didn't feel like they could trust people. And so something terrible would happen at their organization, either in the media or with the staff or with the board, and they didn't feel like they could share it. And, and what would almost always happen is very shortly after, they would no longer be in that job. So people would just come and go, um, and you wouldn't even really have a sense of, of what was going on for that person because they would already be gone. So... 
if I play back what I heard you say, Glenda, that there's a correspondence between loneliness and trust and that a leader has to actually be willing to take something of a leap of faith with colleagues, that the, that the upside of having that relationship is of such benefit that it's, that it's really worth it. Um, that's absolutely true. And I think I, I'm sort of predisposed to be a pretty open book. Um, so I, I'm pretty open with people, especially about struggles that I'm having. Um, and, and so that was something I can remember early on a longtime executive director. When I first, uh, started at the center, we went out for a drink and I said to her, so I've heard that being an executive executive director is kind of like being a parent. You sort of never know if you're getting it right and always kind of feel like you might be getting it wrong, but you just keep going. Um, and she said, yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's pretty accurate. Um, which was so helpful just in the sense of what Joan said in the beginning, just so many people, when you do talk to them, they say, Oh, thank God, I'm not crazy. Thank God I'm not alone. I didn't know that other people felt this way. And that has been so comforting, uh, for me. I, I, I see it all the time and the power of community in building more effective leadership is really underestimated and undervalued. And um, I will tell you another story about Glenda that when I was at GLAD, uh, we had, there was an executive director group. It was a long-standing group of executive directors who worked in the LGBT HIV space in New York. And at any given time, there were 10 or 15 members. And Glenda was jealous. <laughs> Like Jet, Glenda aspired totally. to be a part of that group. Totally. Um, and I, what was that? What was that about? Was it? First of all, you had aspirations to be an executive director, but it was more than that, wasn't it? Yeah, I think it was also about having similarly um, leveled colleagues and peers to be able to talk to, and I think. It clearly, uh, that group is so special and thankfully has been replicated in other cities around the country. But it just felt to me like, oh, my God, how great to be able to talk to other people who are facing the same things you are, coming at it from slightly different angles, and that you could actually build relationships with them. So if something happens out there in the world, you could pick up the phone and talk to each other instead of, like, not even knowing who the other person is. So... Um there are people listening that think ED group, what is that exactly? So offer people a picture of what an ED group can look like. Because I think the ED group in New York that you and I belong to at different times is a, is a mighty good model. Yeah. So um, the ED group in New York was started over 25 years ago, and it was essentially started in uh, the height of the AIDS crisis. And you had people in our movement who were running very small um, but growing nonprofits, either LGBT and or HIV AIDS. And people were really having a hard time. The job was professional and personal and so stressful. People were dying. Um, and as I understand understand it, a group of people got together and said, we should know each other and, and we should be able to talk to each other about what's going on because who, who the heck else are we going to talk to? So today, if you walk into that group, um, what you will find is about a dozen, a little more uh, LGBT uh, and HIV uh, 
executive directors running organizations in New York City. Um, we've tried really hard to make sure that we have a real diversity of the community. So um, trans leaders, uh, leaders of color, um, and we have a facilitator and the facilitator facilitates us checking in. We go around the circle and sort of say how we're doing. And then we discuss topics and it can be anything from something that's really practical. Um, what's the best website to post on to hire staff, for example, or it can be the, the perennial <laughs> constant items of like, how, um, how do you best work with your board? Uh, what's the ideal structure? What's the ideal relationship between you and your board chair and how you keep that really positive? Uh, for, for me, the, the memory I have about it also included peer accountability, that there were people around that table that couldn't see clear to take a vacation. Mm, yeah. and, uh, and there was a real um, camaraderie that developed and and we would actually be really tough on our colleagues to say, you're not going to, if you don't take a vacation, like that's going to be a huge problem for mm-hmm. you. So a peer accountability around self-care was really valuable. I, um, I actually found uh, a good source of board members with mm-hmm. my colleagues, right? Who, has anyone turned off of your board yeah. that you really loved because we're looking for this skill, this act, expertise, this attribute? Mm-hmm. Um, and the last thing I want to say, and I, you know, I, I don't know that it happens enough either in this group or in other groups, but if your group is, is a sector-based group, because you might have a community-based group, right? Mm-hmm. You know, sort of all of the leaders of nonprofits in Columbus, Ohio, mm-hmm. right? Or something like that. And, and all, any of these models can work really nicely, um, is um, collaborative strategy. Mm-hmm. That's what I wish we saw more of, um, uh, that people were willing to sort of share what their priorities were yeah. and to see how they aligned with others to see, well, oh, okay, so you're focused on that piece of it. You know what? Maybe then I should really rethink 2020 mm-hmm. and look at a role differently. And uh, it may be that, that that's a place where the Kind of, it's a little hard to jump over that particular line, uh, and I wonder, I wonder if you have any observations on that. I would say, I mean, you you jog my memory, and I think we certainly do. There's a lot of cheering when people talk about vacations, and there are the people who never talk about vacations who we sort of uh, look at and and give pointed eyes to um, when somebody else talks about taking a vacation. So there there is that positive peer pressure of you've got to take care of yourself, and no one's going to tell you to do that um, except maybe your partner if you have them. Uh, and us. And so we, we do that with each other. And that is a really positive um, thing. I would also say that that peer accountability and the, the ability to both around board members, but also um, potential staff members to be able to go to colleagues and say, I know this person has your organization on their resume. What, what can you tell me about them is actually really, really helpful. Um, and I think has, has created some really good transitions and uh, averted some potentially negative ones. Uh, uh, share with uh, our listeners just a little bit about how you handle confidentiality. 
So confidentiality is key, and it's essentially anything said in the group uh, does not go outside of the group. So, um, you know, if someone is struggling with their board, with their staff, with a public issue, you do not take what an executive director says in that group and tell your staff or your board or your partner even. Um, So confidentiality, I think, is really the benchmark. And because we have a facilitator, I think that just helps us there's someone paying attention and keeping track. And um, it really makes sure that if there is ever an issue around confidentiality, which thankfully um, there hasn't been in a really long time, that it gets addressed because that is the cornerstone of the, of the group. So we are talking with Glenda Testone, who is the uh, executive director of New York City's Lesbian, Gay, Bisexual, and Transgender Community Center, joined there as its first female executive director in 2009. Uh, she has uh, built on the strong foundation of her predecessor and built and transformed that organization, both in terms of its impact, uh, with a capital campaign. And she's now really a, a, a strong thought leader in New York City on a variety of social justice issues. We're talking about the power of community and the necessity of building community in order to be an effective leader, in order to avoid the challenges that come with loneliness. The first thing that we talked about was an executive director group, and whether that's by sector or whether that's in in a particular community. I know there are state organizations that also offer similar kinds of opportunities. I wanted to tackle two other things, uh, Glenda, that I know that I that I, I wanted you to um, kind of weigh in on. So the first one is coaching, and I I I wonder um, uh, how you have approached coaching during your during your tenure, whether you've had one, and if you have, what what drove you to that, and what was you know sort of what was the value of that. Uh, I have utilized coaches um, over my career at least a few times. Um, Initially, it was because I wanted to leave a job and make a transition to something else. And I I really didn't have any idea what that was. So I had a conversation um, with a coach and, and interviewed a couple of people and selected someone and went through a process to learn more about what I wanted to do next. Um, While I've been at the center, I've had two uh, pro bono coaches, uh, both of whom work primarily with the private sector. And the first one was sort of uh, came from my thinking of I'm a new executive director. I'm brand new to being a CEO. What am I not thinking about that I should be thinking about? How do I structure this? How do I make sure that that I'm using my time and my bandwidth in the best possible way. Um, And I found the coach that I worked with to be incredibly helpful around that. And then the second coach was um, actually someone who one of my board members had worked with at his company. And she was someone who sort of was a mixture of um, someone that worked in the social sector and the private sector. And and she, she was brought on to work with me to help me figure out what was sort of what was my vision for the organization and what was my passion and what did, you know, clearly I had proven that I could run the organization. I could raise the money. I could manage the staff, 
But the question was, what's next? And so she really helped me kind of tap into what I was personally passionate about in this work and, and really bring that to the forefront of the organization. Um, so it sounds smart. And also, I, I hope that people who are listening heard um, heard two important things. One is the word pro bono. <laughs> and the other was refer to me by my board member. Mm. And um, so coaches don't have to cost an arm and a leg. And also it is just a, again, just a little reminder that board members bring a variety of skills, expertise, networks, connections uh, to their board service. And tapping into those is smart for you. And it, in fact, um, it actually adds a real value proposition to your board member who feels terrific that, you know, that that board member has actually contributed in that way. So yes. I hope you heard both of those things. The last thing I wanted to talk about is um, you are part of a group and in fact, our player leadership role in a, in a group that was formed not terribly long ago, I mean, mm-hmm. uh, of other LGBT community centers around the country. Now, when I last thought about it, I think there were like 75 of them. <laughs> I, I wonder how many there are now, you'll tell me. And tell me about this organization, Centerlink, and how it provides value in this same kind of community way for um, folks who run LGBT community centers. Yeah, I, Centerlink is amazing and an amazing resource. And there are currently over 200 LGBT community centers across the okay, country. I'm really, really old. <laughs> And some around the world, um, some internationally as well. Uh, and Centerlink is the membership organization that all of those centers can belong to. Um, I sit on the board of Centerlink, and the primary purpose of the organization is to really um, connect and help uh, empower and strengthen those organizations. So I, I would say the two main goals are to really help community centers thrive and then to connect community centers to each other so they can thrive. And um, community centers are interesting because they are largely still volunteer-led, so not all of them have paid staff. Uh, And Centerlink is an organization that electronically, online, through um, video conferences, and then through an in-person conference once a year, a summit that we do, uh, we bring together LGBT community center leaders from all over the country to come together, talk to each other, learn from each other, and build connections that they can take back to their own organization to make it even better. Um, But it's true that one of the best things you get from participating in Centerlink is the peer group and the camaraderie and the fact that, you know, when I started at the center, I faced a really uh, challenging controversy for a couple of years. And now I've, because I weathered that, I've sort of become one of the go-to people for if some other center director is facing a really tricky, controversial subject. Um, So I I find myself playing that role a lot and being really grateful that I can be there for other people the way people were there for me when I went through it. You're on the, and you're on the board there. Yes. And um, that must be a useful experience. I mean, I know that having been an executive director and then being a board member um, taught me a lot about both roles, and I and I assume the same is true for you. 
so true. It, you know, I often find myself, we, we had a longtime executive director at Centerlink and he left about a year and a half ago. And so we have a newish executive director. Um, and it, it's really, it's really interesting. I find myself in board meetings sort of checking myself and saying, am I asking this question because I'm being a good board member and I'm trying to do the right thing to support the executive director and further the organization? Or am I just being curious and, and sort of stirring, stirring the pot? So it makes you very, I think being a board member of Centerlink makes me very conscious of, of, um, making sure that I'm being a good board member. Uh, and it's especially interesting with Centerlink because 50% of the board runs centers themselves. So we're sort of the, the membership organizations and we're the board members and we run our own uh, LGBT center. So it's it's been a really interesting dynamic. And I find myself, it, it gives me a little more empathy for some of my board members who sometimes ask questions that I think, why are you asking that? You're just, <laughs> you know, you're just like being a jerk. And, and I found myself now, I'm like, no, you're not. Because I had the instinct to ask that question in this board meeting. So it, it's really been helpful, I think, to sit in that seat. The, the putting yourself in that shoe, um, I, I think for me, it wasn't just about the questions, although absolutely true. Uh, for me, I, I realized that I never felt like I was doing enough when I was a board member. Mm-hmm. And, I, I, and, and I'm sure that I was a high-performing board member, right? Mm-hmm. I'm sure that I was. Mm-hmm. And yet, at the same time, I would look at the list of things I had committed to do, and I felt like half the time I wasn't doing half of them. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I, th- I think that that's the empathy that I took away from board yeah. service, yeah. is that executive directors expect so much from their <laughs> boards. And I think that that tension and that disconnect of my board is not, not doing enough. Um, should be tempered just ever so slightly by the notion that your board members actually are volunteers. Yes. And the frustration they feel about not necessarily sort of hitting a home run every time they get up to the plate, it probably bothers them at least as much as it bothers you. Yeah. So something else to think about. Um, uh, we're just about out of time. And I, anything else you want to talk about, about um, sort of advice for people or sort of, you know, just to reemphasize the, this notion of the value of uh, community as it's almost a piece of professional development. Any final words for listeners? I think community is the key. And you really, it doesn't matter if you're living in a big city or small town, um, you can find peers and you can find people to connect with and, and be honest and authentic with. And I think that is the key to longevity and uh, as an executive director and a successful organization. Um, I've really, it, it has been immensely helpful to have a group of peers that I can connect with on a regular basis to commiserate, to celebrate, to just look at each other and say, I know that you're going through it too. You don't even have to say anything. Um, it's just been so priceless. And, and you don't have to have a formal ED group structure. Ask a couple of your colleagues that you respect to have coffee every other week. You know, I, I mean, it's really something that you can do anywhere with anyone. You can find a way to connect with people and build that community. And it will sustain you if you take the time to do that. Um, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I think of community as kind of the secret sauce. Um, you can be a kick-ass executive director, 
But if you do not feel supported and surrounded by kindred spirits, um, it can really, it, it really is, I think, a critical element of retention. Um, so I just want to say um, thanks, Glenda, for coming by my house and putting up with your <laughs> dog and the microphone and the construction. Um, and um, I, uh, as uh, both a, a donor to the center and as uh, a family that actually has a we have a 25-year-old daughter who's a member of our community. We have a lot of skin in the game and are really appreciative of the work that you do. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much, Joan. I really appreciate it. It was wonderful to be here. Um, I just have one more thing to say, if that's okay. Yes, yeah, that's fine. I have one more thing to say, too. <laughs> but I get the last word. <laughs> oh, I see. Yeah. Okay. I knew that. Um, I wanted to say, you had mentioned earlier that that oftentimes you can use these peer groups to test out ideas. And I think that that's an argument for starting to build a group like that now. Because when you have a new idea, so when Donald Trump was elected, New York State did not currently have an LGBT statewide advocacy group. And so a lot of people started coming to the center and saying, could you do statewide advocacy? You are well-positioned, you're neutral, you're representative, you already run the statewide health and human services network. Can you consider this? And the very first thing I did was go to that ED group and say, what do you guys think of this? Is anybody else thinking about this? Is anybody else doing this effectively that I'm missing? We don't want to duplicate. But if you don't have that group already and you just pull people together to have that conversation, it's a much harder conversation. I think there's just a lot less trust in the room um, to be able to really authentically work through that. Uh, So I just start now. Don't wait. Um, totally agree. And so I want to, I, I want to, um, leave you with, uh, an invitation. Um, as many of you know, I run a, uh, membership site for board and staff leaders of small but mighty nonprofits. It's called the Nonprofit Leadership Lab. It's at nonprofitleadershiplab.com. And we have thousands of members now from across the United States and around the world, across every single imaginable sector. And um, we, um, one of the things we are most proud of, and one of the things we have been most sort of just really taken by, is that we provide a tremendous amount of content on grant writing, on, you know, you name that topic that somebody needs some help with, and there's content there. But it's the, it is, it is the community that keeps people there, that, that we have folks from Portland, Oregon, who are colleagues with people from Kenya. Mm. And the, uh, the, uh, the spirit of generosity uh, amongst these people is, um, it's really incredible. And uh, when I go in uh, in the mornings to add my comments, because this um, private Facebook group is, moderated by a series of experts. So it's not self-moderated. You ask a question, you get an answer. Um, It's just really um, inspiring. And in a world where we're a little bit short on hope and a a little bit long on chaos, uh, spending time with your colleagues who do this work is, is a, like, put gas in your tank, and it is reminding you that there are just really, really good people in the world. So um, we are opening our registration in September. Uh, you can go to nonprofitleadershiplab.com and just hit join the waitlist. And 
you will get on a, a, a list um, to get all the information that you need to learn more about it. We'll be opening it again for a very short period in September. And lastly, we offer um, a couple times a year we do this because we know that small but mighty nonprofits don't have a lot of resources. And we do a free video workshop. Uh, the last one was called How to Build a Thriving Nonprofit. This one is called High Impact, No Burnout. And uh, it is a lot about professional development, and it, but mostly it's about prioritizing. The, uh, something that I have found that nonprofit leaders really suck at. Um, they think everything is important mm -hmm. and everything feels important. Mm -hmm. But if you don't prioritize, you sink. And um, so if you go to Nonprofit Leadership Lab and hit join the waitlist, you will also get the information about the free video workshop. Uh, and uh, you will find it to be completely valuable, whether or not you determine that the Leadership Lab is a fit for you or not. So um, it's just our way of making sure that Nonprofits of all sizes get resources. 1.5 million nonprofits in this country, and 67% of them have budgets of under half a million, and most of those are under a quarter of a million. And there's not a big professional development commitment or budget. And so it's our way of giving back to you and offering you the opportunity to be a part of a community for a modest monthly fee that will enable you to um, strengthen your own leadership skills and build a community that can be um, sort of mission critical to your retention. So uh, that's my story for today. I'm sticking to it and um, I, we'll see you next time. Thanks for joining us. Joan Gary's obsession with supporting your work takes many forms. Subscribe to her blog at JoanGary.com, reaching over 100,000 visitors monthly from over 170 countries. Explore the Nonprofit Leadership Lab, the best online resource for board and staff leaders of small nonprofits at nonprofitleadershiplab.com. Join 15,000 kindred spirits on Facebook at Thriving Nonprofit with Joan Gary.